Abraham was not having a very good go of things, to put it mildly. His father had died. At the very end of chapter 11, you'll see that. He was headed to a place he knew absolutely nothing about. God was leading him there to be sure, but it was a secret. God had just told him to get up and to go to a place that I'm showing you. His wife was barren. We know this because Abraham didn't have any children. And um, and when God makes this further promise to him, when he elaborates on the promise in Genesis 15, obviously we learn a lot more about the situation. Abraham raises the objection about how it is that he is going to be the father of a great nation when he has no children. He has left his people true. Um, he has Sarah with him. He has Lot with him. He has his servants with him. But headed from Ur of the Chaldeans to this land that the Lord is going to show him, he has nothing. He is leaving all of his people. If you have ever left your people you know what a big deal this is. Probably an even greater deal in this day and age because he would have never had contact with those people ever again. He would have left them once for all and unless he would have made some unusual trip back to that area, that would have been that. There was, there were no phones, there's no email, no text messages, no mail service to speak of. And so Abraham, or Abram, was very much leaving his people for good. When he got there, to the land that God was leading him to, to Canaan, he had no home. He was a wanderer. In the first verses there in chapter 12, we see this as he goes from place to place to place. Abram is in the land, but he doesn't have a dwelling place. He's a tent dweller at this point. Put on top of that, the Canaanites lived in Canaan. Surprising, I know. The Canaanites are there. These are not friendly people. They were known not for their friendliness, but for the ruthlessness. And so now he's gone from Ur of the Chaldeans, from his people, to the land of Canaan with those people. And he's not living in a home. He's on the move, living in tents. Amongst people that were known for all of their evil and their perverted ways. They were idolaters. The next time you think about Abraham, you think about Abram leaving, those are the circumstances that were going on in his life. To top it all off, what do we read here? Verse 10. There was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to live in Egypt because the famine was what? Severe. So Abram has gone through all of this. He's in the land for a significant period of time, a chunk of time here. And now there's a famine in the land. 
this is the first point. It's, it, it highlights for us, it points out all of the pressures and the distress of Abraham's life. Now remember, we talked about this last week. If you weren't here, in, in these early chapters, Abraham is Abram, same guy. Um, his name is going to change when the Lord gives him this, this new name. He's the same guy. We'll use those interchangeably just to make it easy on you, okay? So all of that is going on. He's in the land. He's had all of these pressures in the move alone, and now there is a famine. Now, right now, there's a drought in California. You may pay a little more for that bag of almonds and uh, maybe some fresh produce here and there, but by and large, you are not going to suffer because there's a severe drought in California. But if you were living in the land in this day and there's a severe drought, you are going to know about it. Because your daily subsistence is coming every single day. You know, your servants are grinding meal, they're making flour, you, you are making the day's meals that day. You're not going to the market and pulling off of the shelves and all that sort of stuff. And so a, a, a drought in the land has an immediate and direct effect upon Abraham and his family. And that is the pressure. That is the pressure that he is under. Those are the distresses that are in his life causing him to make the move that he makes next. And that's our second point. Egypt's allure. And here is where the challenge is for us as we think about this. What should Abraham have done? What was he supposed to do at this moment? He had people to take care of. He had sheep and oxen to take care of. He had servants. He had his wife, Sarah. He had Lot. He had all sorts of responsibilities. He's in a land that is in severe famine. What was wrong with going down to Egypt? Was anything wrong with going down to Egypt? Was this just a prudent decision that, that he had to make? With the exception of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, with the exception of Mary and Joseph being told to go to Egypt, every other occurrence, virtually every other occurrence in the Bible about going down to Egypt is bad. Isaiah 31.1 reflects this. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots. You see, going down to Egypt was essentially abandoning their principles. Going to Egypt was leaving the land that God had called him to in favor of another land where he could go and be taken care of. Egypt held all of the other gods. Egypt was the world. And they were worldly. Years ago, a lot of years ago, I was preaching a sermon 
see how deftly I'm going to tie together the new members now and this sermon. I was preaching a sermon, and in the sermon I said something about everything going south. I remember where I preached the sermon. It's a little town called Edwards, Mississippi. If you've ever driven I-20 from here to, say, Dallas or something, you are going to pass Edwards, Mississippi. Very quickly you will pass it. Halfway in between Jackson and Vicksburg, actually about 15 miles outside of Vicksburg. And if you ever want to eat at a wonderful little place, I think it's still there, it's called the Bovina Cafe. And you can get off right there at the Edwards exit, make a right, and the Bovina Cafe is there. You've never been anywhere like it, trust me. I'm preaching this sermon in Edwards, Mississippi, and I refer to things having gone south. Finish the sermon, I'm at the door, a gentleman is leaving, and he says, you know, we don't say things have gone south in the south. Because it's a derogatory phrase. I had no, I had never even thought about it. In the Bible, going to Egypt is a derogatory phrase. It carries the same connotation. If you've gone to Egypt, things have gone bad. Here is Abram making a decision to leave the land that God had called him to, to go to a land where his needs could be met. Are you tracking with me? Because there was the allure of Egypt. They had the granaries. Pharaoh had the wealth. They had, they had, they could take care of. They could sustain. You, you had the Nile. You had green lushness. You had what you needed in Egypt to live on. And Abram is looking at his livestock and he's looking at his people and he's looking at the land and he's doing an assessment of the situation and he panics and he says, it's time to go south. And so they went south. Instead of trusting God's promises, Instead of trusting that God had led him to the land, and if God had led him to the land, what? He would take care of him. Instead of trusting that if God led him to the land, that God would take care of him, Abram makes a decision to leave the land that God had called him to and go to a land that he thought would provide for him. This is where the rational person begins to win. This is where we begin to go, okay, well, what was Abraham supposed to do? Stay in the land and starve? And of course the answer is no. But would the God who called him to the land that he was promising to him, listen, the promise entailed making his descendants so numerous that they were, they were going to inhabit the earth, making him a blessing to the nations. I mean, the promise starts off fairly significant in its nature. And here, Abram is letting go of the promise in order to go to another land. But just think about it. Just think about other instances that you know of 
in the very next book of the Bible, there's going to be a situation in which God calls the people out of Egypt and he's calling them to go back to the land. And so they have a new leader. They have Moses. And, and under his direction, they're in the wilderness. They're wandering. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's brought them through all of those trials and tribulations. They're wandering out of the desert. He's giving them, you know, he's he's been meeting their needs. But they're looking around. They see the desert conditions. And they start saying to Moses in chapter 17, Why did you bring us out here so that we could starve to death? And they they charge Moses with treason, essentially charging God with treason, because they don't think that God can sustain them. And what do they do? They start thinking about, oh, those pots of meat back in Egypt, they're so delectable, so delicious, oh, I can smell them now. And, And their stomachs were driving them back to Egypt. A million and a half plus people in the desert. And what does God do? Does he abandon them? No. It's the miraculous story of the Exodus. He feeds them every single day manna from heaven. He gives them quail in the evening. He gave them so much quail because they were complaining that it came out their nostrils. He fed them and fed them and fed them. He gave them water from the rock. He provided all of these miracles. He nurtured them. He took care of them all through their desert wanderings. So we can't say that Abraham in the in the promised land did the right thing. He should have trusted God. He should have acted on that initial faith. He should have kept acting as he had initially acted in trusting God to go to the land, but he didn't. Perhaps you've heard about a man in England, a man who opened an orphanage that eventually had 10,000 children who were without parents passed through it. The man's name is George Mueller. His life spanned almost the entirety of the 1800s. I think he was born in maybe 1804 and lived to like 1890. So almost the entirety of the 1800s, George Mueller lived primarily in Bristol, England. In addition to his orphanage, through which nearly 10,000 kids passed through, he also started 117 schools, which are responsible for the education of nearly 130,000 children. And here's what you got to know about George Mueller. He was the epitome of broke. He had nothing. He didn't come from a wealthy family. He himself had nothing. Up until the time of his conversion in college, he was a reprobate. I mean, bad dude. He, his, he was known as a liar, cheater, thief until his conversion in college, university, early, late school, that time period of his life. He felt called to care for these children that he saw on the streets with no wealth to speak of, never having asked for money, ever making his needs known, 
he began to pray. Here's one of the stories. The stories, if you have not read them, are nearly unbelievable. If you have read them, you know they're unbelievable. I have a hard time when I read George Mueller's stories. Did you know this, though? George Mueller diaried nearly every accounting. And it's in his own pen that he wrote about all the things that happened. Here's one of the stories. The children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat, the house mother of the orphanage informed George. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit in the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew that God would provide food for the children. He always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked at the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I couldn't sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and I baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in ten large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 thirsty children. Go read George's stories. Story after story after story, accounting after accounting after accounting of God meeting his needs. There's still the George Mueller Institute or something along those lines in England. They never, they never, ever, ever advertise for money. They never make their needs known. They just pray. Jesus instructed us not to worry, didn't he? He told us that the Father takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies in the field, the flowers of the field. And he said, if he takes care of them, how much more will he take care of you, the children that he loves? Now, you and I are probably not in the position right now, just yet, of having to trust God for our next meal. But let me ask you, What ways do you struggle in your walk of faith? Where is your point of struggle? Where is that that point of weakness in your life where you have difficulty trusting the promises of God? Because undoubtedly, somewhere in your life, that's there. Where is it? Have you identified it? Do you know where that weakness is in your, in your life? It's very important to know, to call it out, to, to pray on it, to think about it, to identify it. Remember, the, the, greatest, the greatest danger that we face in life is not confessing our sin. It's a failure to acknowledge our sin. That's what will kill you. Admitting your weakness, admitting your struggle, admitting your sin is not what will kill you. What will kill you in the end is a failure to do so. That's the allure of Egypt. It's that our needs can be met out there 
instead of providentially by the Lord. It's that the Lord needs me to help him along in this endeavor of my life. And I can do it best if I do it my way and not his way. And that was the struggle that Abraham had. The pressure was on. The famine was real. He had pressing needs. And he abandoned the land that God called him to in favor of a land he believed could meet his needs. Finally, I want you to see God's provision. So, what are the results? What happens? Abram and Sarah, they're going down to Egypt. Let's just put it this way. They're embroiled in a little bit of controversy. Because on the trip down, Abram, looking at his beautiful wife, who also is his half-sister, let's not go there this morning, okay? There were no rules governing that particularly at this point. She's also his half-sister, which some people have pointed out. It wasn't technically a lie, but it was. On the way down, he realizes when we get to Egypt... They're, they're going to see your beauty just like I've seen your beauty and they're going to, they're going to want to take, Pharaoh's going to want to take you into his palace. He's going to want you to be one of his wives. So let's figure out a story. Let's get our story straight so that I'm not in danger and everything will be okay in the end. And so they put the story together. Abraham puts the story together, but it is a story that nearly cost Abram and Sarah their lives. Because when Pharaoh finds out, we don't know how, but but the best guess is Sarah told him he could have killed him. Probably under normal stand normal circumstances would have killed both of them had God not intervened. And some strange twist, God intervenes in all of this, right? And, and what do we read? He intervenes in this. The Egyptians give up their, 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 they give up all sorts of stuff to him. They treated him well. He acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maid servants, and camels. You may think, well, of course camels. I mean, this is the Middle East. But camels actually weren't domesticated until much further along. They were considered a very hot commodity. And so for camels to have been thrown in was actually a big deal. And so here is Abram getting wealthy off of Pharaoh in the circumstance. And in the end, verse 20 when Pharaoh lets him go and gives the orders to Abram about Abram to his men, they send him on his way. And what did they send him with? Everything that he had acquired. Verse 17, we know that the Lord intervened. Yahweh intervened. He afflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram and Abram's wife, Sarah. And so through all of that, He summoned Abram, put it all together, chastises him, but sends him on his way. Why? Well, very practically speaking, the story's not over. 
I mean, it's kind of like watching a movie, right? And you're on the edge of your seat, and then you realize, we're only halfway through. He can't die yet. And of course, in this story, what is what has happened? What happened at the beginning of chapter 12? At the beginning of chapter 12, God has made a promise. He has promised Abram that he is going to be a significant feature in his redemptive plan. And that hasn't happened yet. And so even though Abram has made these decisions for himself and he's twisted and turned and he's going, he wants to go down to Egypt and he's going to protect his family and take care of everything, God's not done with him yet. God's not through with him yet. God still has to use him for his own glory. He has plans for Abraham and they're not fulfilled yet. And so very practically speaking, Abraham can't die because God is going to use him. And he is going to make him the father of a great nation. He is going to give him a son. And he hasn't done that yet. And so he and Sarah can't die. And Sarah can't become one of Pharaoh's wives. And it can't all work out that way. And so God intervenes. But can I tell you something? Listen. This is classic Yahweh, isn't it? Taking disasters... And out of those disasters, showing his goodness and his grace and his mercy. Now let me ask you, what, what, do you, what do you leave with this morning from a story out of Genesis 12, the second half? What do we walk away with? Here's the first thing. God does not abandon his purposes. He will glorify his own name. He will bring to fruition his plans. You don't know them. What you know is what he has called you and I to do and be from his word. Listen, it, it, he, his normal mode is not to speak audibly to us. His normal mode is he has revealed his will in the word to us. And so we go and we do. In Abraham's life, because he did not have the revelation that you and I have, he was at work. But what we see here is that God will bring about his own purpose. And the second is this. You will never be too far along in your journey of faith that you do not need God's grace. Your salvation, my salvation, our salvation is by grace. First, to last. You don't start on that track and then leave it. You stay on it the entire way. And here is, this is a resounding theme in Abraham's life. He was saved by grace through faith. He was saved by grace through faith. That's just the reality of it. And, and he needs that grace every step of the way. And he started out well, and then he messed up. And so, if you're here this morning and you think the message of the gospel is, I get saved and then I do the heavy lifting the rest of my life, hear this message. Your salvation is by grace through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man can boast. Abraham is going to need the intervention of God's grace not once, not twice, multiple times. You know why? 
Because he's a sinner saved by grace too. Just like you and I are. Let me take you to a quick passage and we're going to sew up right here. Galatians chapter 3. You've got your Bibles. You may want to turn there or you may just want to make note of it. Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul starts talking about faith and the observance of the law. I want to pick up in verse 6 because he says this. This will just give you that little bit of insight. Consider Abraham, Paul says. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. He's talking about us. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to who? Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Was Abraham a man of faith? Absolutely. Was it by the grace of God? You betcha. How about this? Because we are often inclined, okay? You hear the story of Abraham, you think about your own struggle, and here's what we do. I'm just going to try harder. That's what I've got to do. I've got to buckle down and do more. I've got to buckle down. I've got to get busy. I've got to do better. And indeed, if you're a person of faith and if you've met the grace of God, you want to do that. But your salvation is never by that. And here's what I want you to hear. Verse 10. All who rely on observing the law, what? Are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Your salvation comes the exact same way that Abraham's did. And your struggle, exactly the same way that Abraham's struggles came. So when we come and we look at a story, it's easy for us to go, why didn't you just stay put? Why didn't he just stay there and trust the Lord and pray? Believe that God would provide for him. Well, the same reason you and I run and hide when we're scared and when we don't trust And when our faith is weak. But what is the message? What does God come? God comes and meets him. God comes and by his grace continues to labor alongside him. And I want you to know that message this morning as well. No matter what has happened, no matter where you're at, you've begun this journey by grace, through faith, and you will continue by grace, through faith. Until the end of it all. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for the message that comes to us from Abraham's life. Father, for the, for your goodness to us in all of life. We praise you. We thank you. We ask, oh Lord, continue to labor alongside us. As we fail, as we struggle with sin, as we fall down, as we complain, Father, as we don't engage and follow hard after you, we need your grace and we need your mercy. Continue to labor with us as you did our father Abraham and do it all for your glory in Jesus' name.
Amen.